can't remember his last name. I was going to do an impression of a guy, but I can't remember his last name. It's the impressions ruined. Just a guy? No, dude. No, I don't know why I said that. So, uh, no, no, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, dude. dude. A specific guy, but I can't remember his last name, so I can't say that I'm him. <sighs> What's his first name? Dave. Dave? Oh, Bru- it's Dave Brubeck. You, that's who you wanted to do an impression of? Yeah, my fucking famous Dave Brubeck impression. Wait, do it. Yeah, it's mostly about the notes between the notes. Like, to me, jazz is about the notes that you don't play. That's my Dave Brubeck impression. You know, I was expecting it to be really bad, but I actually thought that was pretty good. It's really when you came in with the the saxophone. Yeah, you got to look good. You have a good like kind of internal blowing like horn sound you got going on there. Yeah, it's nice. I feel like I could be in another era, probably one of the best jazz. Like if I was born, no. Just whatever you're about to say, like I'm going to say no. 1899, you, I think I would have invented jazz. No, and also you were doing so well with the very adorable Aww. Brubeck impression. And then you got to come out with the I would have invented jazz. And I you have just killed the it all. greatest record I have. The, the prize of my collection is I have a cool uh, weird 45 that his son did. Mm. Uh, called You'll Lose. Is it's it good? Fucking, yeah, it's great. I found out that place with Rookie Ricardo's. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. It's better than any Dave Brubeck did. I'm not a big fan of Dave Brubeck, to be honest. No? No. I feel like I'm better than him. I think it's, you know, it's perfect for a romantic comedy from the 90s. Yeah, which is the opposite of how I live my life. I live and my life. is how I live my life. I, you do. You do. You don't have frizzy enough hair. Thank you. That was a compliment? Thank you. I don't understand women. My name is Dave Brubeck. Praise Brubeck. Uh, I'm Liz. Praise. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky, and this is Truanon. Hello. Hello. We are, what, what's the month, Liz? Can you check your calendar? It's November. Your favorite month. It's an okay month. What's your favorite month? Mm, I'm not telling you. You're not telling me. Yes. It's a whole two. We're about to spend like three I have a couple hours of favorite months. Secrets. November's one of them. Oh, crazy. November sucks. Yeah. What May others? is another. Also shitty. And I really like December, classic. Because what of, the frick is wrong with you? I love Christmas and holiday. Crazy cheer. to base your pleasure of a month and on coziness. the holidays within. Everyone knows the the best months are like June, September. Okay, get that out of the way. Yeah. But personal faves, I like a December. I'm a December rocking, to remember. I'm rocking with August. Unbearably hot. Yeah, you would. It sucks, but I it's it's but you know what's better than than the cold of December? Mm. The heat of summer. You know, you say that now, but I'm going to record you in the summer because it's, it's not at all what comes here, out of your mouth. It's just hot in here, dude. It's just hot in here. No. What? I like I'm like a beach guy. Yeah, it's very yeah, ludicrous. I'm, I'm going to the beach. Let's get into so many years. 
JFK. The episode. We are talking today. We have with us Ben Howard and Aaron Good. Two people you know and love. I think Ben's been on the show, in fact, not even think. Ben has been on the show by far more than any other guest, I yes. would say. I was thinking about this earlier. Ben's and we've in had the family room members right of his. Just, he's just not mic'd up. So I know, just, he's just right here. He's just Wait, sitting can here. You, we can, ben, off the top of your head, how many on episodes have you been on? <laughs> there was a whole 9-11. Yes. I actually forgot about one because I forgot that we did those ones with my brother. Yeah, I was going to say, your brother has yes. also been on the like, show. I, the- I actually forgot about that because, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot. It was 9-11, Boston bombing, JFK. Uh, like a couple NATO. one-off. Those oh are my some God, of Oh, my God, ones. dude. We did it, uh, the NATO series with the you. The NATO yeah, episode. Yeah, those are that Gladio. Was, yeah, that we was did part a bunch of NATO. Yeah, I can't remember. Those are some 11. people's favorites, I got to say. It's been a lot. I think we're going to... I think we have... Time. I think you're yeah. our award-winning guest. In Which fact, is actually so crazy because we have an award here to give you. Oh, my God. <laughs> actually, yes, Liz. Show him the... We, we do have a real award. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. I don't think you <laughs> want it, but we were sent this by <laughs> the the insane looking new Patreon. It's the craziest <laughs> thing, and I I queried I queried is other. I, we don't know. I'll just describe what this is. It looks like a misshapen jelly bean with yes. a child's face on it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think is, it's a completely accurate assessment. And I of what think, that is. and this is a Patreon creator milestone award. Yeah, I don't know what milestone. Who, who's who? Do you? I mean, do you really want to put this like on it's your mantle for the and milestones show it off? that you have been a part of in creating so many memorable <laughs> Patreon you, you're episodes? You share in that award, Ben. Well, thank you. I I, I take this proudly. I gotta be honest. I, I asked a bunch of other people. It's got I'm like, gems on it. Did you guys get an award or anything? And it's bedazzled. That's crazy. Only we got an award. We looked it's at, like deceptively heavy. We looked at the lady's other artwork, and let me tell you, it's I had out of this world. Stuff that I don't want to say on the show. <laughs> out of this world. <laughs> I, 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 I just I, I do appreciate that instead of like the Grammy guy or Oscar, the Oscar, I actually don't know what Oscars, that's the same thing as the Grammys? Yeah, as a guy. The They're guy. mostly usually guys, the, right? It's not the same. No, Grammys. Grammys no, Academy Awards is the same thing as the, yeah. as the Grammys. The Academy Awards oh, yeah, the are the Grammys. Uh, the Grammys are a record player, right? Yeah, yeah a yeah, record a player. Yeah. And then the Moon Man for MTV. This Sorry. is the opera singer from Fifth Element's yeah. head. <laughs> <laughs> as it's leaving her body, <laughs> it's too. It's also like going somewhere yeah. else. I genuinely think this is the only award I've ever gotten in my life. <laughs> this is incredible. I don't know who gets awards. You know what, though? It's just nice to be nominated. It's nice to win. It's nice to win. <laughs> That's why I don't understand when people say that. It's like, okay, it's nice to be nominated. Ben just tried to hand it back to Liz, but she was looking at me. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's really it nice to give it to me. All right, so we have Ben here, and if you know we, if we have Ben here, you know you're about to hear more than one episode of something. Ben, what are we talking about? We're talking about JFK. We're talking about Lee Harvey Oswald, especially, and all of his various escapades and an international man of mystery and. Uh, what what people knew and didn't know about what was going on with uh, with that little Mexico City thing? God, he's so good. A natural. Let's get to it. Ah, what a brisk but beautiful November day here in Dallas, Texas. I love being president. The best part to me about it 
is the parades. And the best part about parades to me is this extraordinary uh, – I pronounce weird because I'm, I'm from the Northeast. It's this extraordinary uh, open-top limousine that I'm allowed to ride in. They let you do it when you're present. Ah, time to get my beautiful wife who assures me that she has no taste for the Greeks, only the Irish – and sit right here in this limousine and just uh, head through town. Ooh, a book depository. Oh, I love books. In fact, I've written one myself about all of my heroes. Ah, <sighs> what a wonderful... No! Which is the sound you make when you get shot. God lets you say a couple words before you die. And here to say a couple of words and then die with us are independent researcher Ben Howard and political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast, Aaron Good. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Bryce. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we have both of you here in person. Yeah. Aaron, we've had you in person. Ben, we've never had you in person before. This is so exciting. Yeah, it's a, it's a very quaint zone. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I got to tell you. Uh, one thing that I, I don't want to dox you or anything, you know, we're saying your first and last name on the show. The guy is massive. I'm a man of height. It's it's been said that's true. Seven? No, no. But it's all in the legs. All all of it's in the legs. Sort of like a Yao Ming situation that I was just not expecting. But we we're having you guys on Yao because it, it is about to be the 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. And longtime listeners and true heads will know that we did uh, – we were just trying to figure out how many episodes. I think we did six. Six. We did six episodes. J- just JFK 101 episodes with you guys. And uh, now we are all gathered here in person for actually the biggest in-person podcast recording session. That's not true. We've had four people in person. On really? The show. When? Stav and Adam. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, for the, our second – and the first in this <laughs> studio – uh, we're doing a little JFK 201. Which we should say, by the way, if people listening, you haven't listened to the 101 series, the six episodes, stop listening to this. Go back. That's six hours. I'm practically actually probably it's more than like 12 than hours. Yeah. hours of primo podcasting that I highly recommend and will get you fully pilled on everything that happened to Dealey Plaza. We've done other episodes uh, kind of related to this, too, mm-hmm. one with Lisa Pease and one with uh, James Eugenio, who I think will come up uh, a little bit later in this little talk. But we are doing right now, you, I assume, because you're a, a true listener, you have listened to all of those. And actually, in anticipation of the 60th anniversary, you've recently listened to all of those episodes. Mm. And so we're going to skip with some of the maybe the little buildup, and we're going to head straight into basically JFK 201 here. And so I know there was a few things both of you guys wanted to bring to the table here. And one is, and one of my favorite things, is both internal workings of the CIA and also Oswald's um, colorful life in the years leading up to the assassination. He, he certainly had a very colorful life. And I think the one of the most interesting places to find out about that is to look at what the CIA says they knew about him. Uh, and, you know, I mean, uh, reading through troves of documents and CIA bureaucracy, it definitely 
uh, one of my one of my hobbies, one of my pastimes, and there's <laughs> there's ample uh, ample documentation to go through. Not as much as there should be. I mean, you know, there are thousands of documents that are still being withheld, which you know, legally speaking, should have been declassified already. And a bunch that are just straight redacted. Yeah, or, I mean, there are lots of records that have been destroyed as well where mm-hmm. you see references to things that, that subsequently were, were, you know, just removed from the record entirely. Um, so clearly there is, uh, there, there certainly was more evidence in the documentary record, but even what exists, uh, uh, you know, right now and what's been declassified or at least partly declassified, uh, you can start to definitely get a sense that, uh, the CIA was was less than forthcoming uh, with both the Warren Commission, but also with the uh, House Select Committee, and they knew a lot of things that they didn't say at that time, and concealed a lot of things. Um, and I guess you know the the it, because there's a lot of arcane technical details about who knew what when and who sent which memo to who, uh, but really at the end of the day, it's it's about trying to understand uh, why was this guy who, as we'll discuss. You know, the CIA knew he had he had attempted to, de- you know, that he did defect to the USSR mm-hmm. in 1959, uh, that he had threatened to give up secrets about something special that he knew, and we can talk about what that was, uh, that he then came back and was involved in organizing for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, allegedly. Uh, you know, he was, he was apparently a big fan of Castro, mm-hmm. and yet simultaneously also apparently anti-Castro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes to Mexico City and meets again with officials in in uh, both the Cuban and Soviet uh, embassies in Mexico City uh, just weeks before, you know, like six weeks before the assassination. Uh, and f- for some reason, despite that fact, on October 8th, you know, like six weeks before Kennedy's killed, he's taken off of the FBI's uh, security index so when the Secret Service does their sweep of, you know, does anybody happen to work in a, in a book depository who might have a checkered past, to say the least, they don't find anybody on that list. And so, you know, there's, there's Oswald in the book depository, uh, you know, when, when Kennedy gets killed. And whatever you think Oswald's ultimate role in that is, you know, there he is. And he's, he's there to get blamed for, for what happened. Um, and so the story of how all of that stuff got suppressed over the course of many years uh, really, uh, I think it shows that the CIA's story that they had no information about him, that their file on him was very small, mm-hmm. um, that he was never that he never served their purposes, that he was never an asset of theirs. Uh, there's a ton of evidence that indicates that that's probably not true, um, and so it makes the all of the continued withholding and lying about. Uh, all these various documents that are still out there, uh, it makes it all the more difficult to understand. Uh, I mean, you, I mean, you can understand that they they want to hide their role in the assassination, <laughs> uh, but just you know, on on its face, they have an obligation to release this stuff. There's no reason to believe them about any of it. Uh, it's clear they're still hiding things. So you know, but that's that's just you know sits on the table. And nobody wants to do anything about it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the more curious aspects of that, right, is like, I mean, people, I, I think, are usually well aware of this, but like, you know, Oswald defected to the USSR. Yeah, that's right. Oswald defected to the USSR after being in the U.S. military. Yeah. Specifically working on essentially spy planes. Yeah. And then says, announces openly, like, I'm going to the USSR. I'm going to defect. And I'm going to give them. I think he tells the consular officer that he meets with before he tears up his passport or whatever. 
uh, that he's going to give them as many secrets as that he knows. Right? Yeah, about his. So I mean, his he he yeah to get into his background around the U two. So he worked on the U two spy plane program, which was a CIA uh, surveillance program. It's a very um, high flying surveillance plane. Uh, that was able to take photos of what was going on in the Soviet Union. This was before spy satellites and all of that. Um, and it was a very useful tool for the U.S. to find out uh, specifically what the Soviet Union was doing with ballistic missiles. Uh, this whole thing around the missile gap was a, a big thing during the Eisenhower administration, this idea that uh, the Soviet Union had these ballistic missiles that would allow them to nuke everybody. Uh, and so, But the U-2 was a huge source of information about what was going on with that. And Oswald worked at um, several different U-2 bases with his Marine uh, uh, radar squadron that he was a part of. He was a radar operator. Um, so he worked at Atsugi Air Base uh, or it was, it was a naval air station uh, in, in Japan. But he was also in the Philippines uh, during, uh, one of the, during the Indonesia crisis in 1958. It seems like they, they presumably the CIA was using this, the U-2 to do you know, spy plane stuff in, in Indonesia. And then during during the Taiwan Straits crisis that same year, so Oswald is a he's a marine radar operator at all of these bases that are associated with the U two program, and it's not a I mean it's not a question that they worked with the U two. His commanding officer testified yeah. like we would see the U two all the time, uh, you know it would park next to our they, the hangar at one of the bases they were working at was was right next to their barracks, so they they knew it. And Oswald uh, was tracking these, and again, his commanding officer, Donovan, talks about how he um, tracked a U-2 flight over China, which was not acknowledged at the time that, you know, that that was happening. Um, and so he certainly knew details about, for instance, how high the U-2 could fly. Um, he knew details about what was the tempo of, of uh, the flights because he was tracking a lot right. of them and, and his unit was tracking all of them. Um, so he knew all of these details. So he, uh, in this, you know, which is, this is itself a crazy story, but he gets a hardship discharge from the Marines, uh, to go take care of his ailing, his ailing mother. That is apparently why he, uh, and I think that happened on September 11th, 1959. He then, uh, like a month later is in Moscow. So he did not apparently have to take care of his mom. Uh, the purpose of it was for him to defect. Mm -hmm. And like you said, he goes into the consular office and starts uh, talking to the consular official who also probably was a CIA uh, asset of some kind. And yeah, starts saying that he's going to share his radar secrets and that he also has, uh, you know, information of, of special interest. Um, and it's also a pretty well understood, you know, important context is that all of those embassies are all bugged by the local intelligence agency. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was something we all learned, you know, during the Khashoggi uh, thing where the where the Saudi consulate where Khashoggi was killed in Turkey, the Turks had bugged it. And, yeah. You know, yeah, knew everything yeah. that was going on. So it's pretty common. So it's the same situation here where the KGB has bugged this uh, embassy and they and everybody knew that. Um, and so Oswald is saying this stuff to this consular official. Like, why would you announce your intention to do something illegal. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like clearly yeah. a performance you're gonna share for, and yeah. you're and you're trying to you're trying to like ostensibly Oswald's going in there to convince this guy like to give me the give me the paperwork so I can renounce my American citizenship. Yeah. So yeah. that I can go tell the the Soviets 
these secrets that I know. Like, I'm, that's I'm, obviously not going to encourage the, the guy to let you do that. I believe there was a reporter there also. Wasn't that Priscilla McMillan there at the... Yeah, and uh, uh, did a write-up on it, and she was somebody who became, fam- you know, she later befriended um, Marina Oswald. And oh, she yeah, was a, Johnson, She was known yeah. as a witting CIA asset. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, she just happened to be there to document yeah. all these wild and crazy things that Oswald was saying. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's... You know, it seems like he, like you said, it was like a performance. Like he yeah. wanted it, and it's also possible. Um, you know, the guy who was basically taking this statement from Oswald uh, also had these CIA connections. Specifically, uh, you know, he had basically gotten instructions from this guy Brickham at the CIA mm-hmm. to to serve intelligence purposes while he was at the embassy, and he had openly worked for the CIA before he went to um, to foreign service school. So it seems very plausible to me that this was that that he anticipated that Oswald was going to come in and do this. Yeah, Oswald certainly knew what to expect. He talks about how, oh yeah, uh, they told me you would try to talk me out of it and things like this. So he it's and Snyder's interpretation was that Oswald had been coached by somebody to do this. Mm. Now there's no, I mean there's no other evidence in the record anywhere that he had any that he told anybody about this or that anybody would have had any insider info about the embassy that would have told him to do this. So what's going on here? Who instructed Oswald to do this? Who gave him this? You know, Snyder talks about how it seemed very prepared and that Oswald was basically reading from a prepared script, not literally, but that he had memorized exactly yeah, what to say. Yeah, he came in like sort of spoke in like a stilted way. That's what Yeah, that it was a – and so like you said, it was a, it was a performance of sorts. Um, and, uh, you know, there are theories about why that happened. But it does seem like some kind of, of intelligence operation uh, that Oswald was involved in there. And it's the huge piece of evidence for that is, uh, you know, my favorite thing, which is document routing and who reads what documents. <laughs> so, you know, ostensibly like this guy who's a Marine goes to the Soviet Union, like there's a whole department in the CIA, a whole division that is supposed to have all that, get all the info about that, this, the Soviet Russia division. They're supposed to, uh, you know, so like uh, like you were saying, Aaron, there was a newspaper article. I think the first one was an Elaine Mosby article that came out uh, the next day. So Oswald defected on October 31st, 1959. The first article came out the next day. So if like you work in the Soviet Russia division, you're probably reading the Washington Post, which is where yeah, this article yeah, appeared. Yeah, yeah. So you would read that article and be like, oh, like this person defected. And the article talked about um, his military background uh, it didn't mention some of the things that later became uh, that Snyder talked about, like well, the fact I, that he was going to offer these secrets. It doesn't have yeah, that stuff because yeah, yeah, it came from an interview that. that she did with Oswald, so it didn't have the juiciest stuff. But you know, it was a bulletin. It was yeah, being it was sent very out. yeah, exactly. It was like a very sh- it was a relatively short article and it didn't include all the de- all the details. Um, but now, if you're in the Soviet Russia division, you'd be expecting that uh, the State Department just met with this guy. They're presumably going to give us a debrief about what happened, and that they never see any of that paperwork. It all gets routed to uh, two other offices in the uh, in the CIA. One of them is James Angleton's, the famous James James Angleton's counterintelligence unit, mm-hmm. um, and the Office of Security. And specifically, it gets routed to the mole hunting units within uh, both of those departments. So the CIA had basically two. Uh, I don't, maybe I'll explain what a mole is if people are. I was about not, to say, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, which is 
Certainly, Angleton was very familiar yeah, with the concept. Yeah, exactly. But what, what is, what's a mole in, in this context? So a mole is someone who purports to uh, work for one intelligence agency, and in reality, they're relaying things back. So one of the one of the more famous moles that's directly related to this is this guy, Peter Popov. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He was a KGB, uh, I can't remember exactly his rank, but he was a fairly high-ranking KGB uh, guy who lived in Moscow, and he became a CIA mole. So from 1952 uh, until he was caught um, in 1959, uh, actually he got caught. He got arre- well. He got arrested. Uh, I think the day that Oswald came to Russia. Uh, so very fortuitous coincidence there. Um, but he uh, he was he was a KGB. Um, you know, he was a KGB officer that's relaying things back to the CIA over a period of about six years. And one of the things that he revealed uh, was that uh, he he overheard one of his colleagues um, talking about the U-2 program. And apparently the Soviet Union had somehow gotten details about the U-2 program from a, from a mole that, they, that this person had in the CIA. Mm-hmm. So Popov tells Angleton this. He tells the, you know, he tells the CIA about this. Um, and I think that is what triggers and and you know that's like Jefferson Morley has written about this and John mm-hmm. Newman has written about this that seems to be what triggers Oswald's uh, trip to to the USSR because you want to figure out what uh, what exactly do they know right Popov overhears one statement but what exactly do they know what details do they know let's go do some kind of counterintelligence operation so it would explain the otherwise very strange thing which is some for some reason, this is the first time Oswald ever comes on the CIA's radar, and yet for some reason, almost all of the documents related to him go to the mole hunting units in the CIA. You know, how can you explain that? Why does that make sense? The most reasonable explanation, given the given the you know documents that exist, is he was a part of some kind of mole hunting operation in some way. Um, I recently talked to Jim Diogenio about this and he had came up with some new research or he pointed me to some of it. And a woman who was working for the HSCA, the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 70s, the group that reinvestigated the assassination, was this woman named Betsy Wolf, and she was given the task of looking at Oswald's CIA file and uh, doing a write-up on it. Now, she... Um, was very diligent and seems to be pretty smart and a dogged researcher, uh, judging by what she was able to put together. Now, there were there was no transcript of this, and it was classified and hidden away for a long time, um, but there were handwritten things that she had. Everything was handwritten. And she was puzzled by the fact that there wasn't a 201 file on Oswald that should have been created, you know, very early on while he's doing all these crazy things. Helms, Helms himself, when he learned of the date, so the 201 file is like a, with the normal file you would expect to see, mm-hmm. right? Like when somebody like Oswald defects, you would normally expect to see a, a so 201 file. So they would file. open up a 201 file? Yeah, yeah. That, the, that the Soviet Russia division would open up a 201 file. Or if file. you did way less, even way less provocative things than yeah. that, oh, you would yeah. get a 201 file. Absolutely. But it, but it was not opened until – so he did that on, on um, October 31st of 1959. And I think the 201 file was not opened until December of the next year, if I recall correctly. Of 1960. Of 1960, yeah. And when Richard Helms was told this, he didn't know this. When he was told this, his reaction was, this is incredible. Like, I, is that really true? I, I actually can't believe that, which I kind of buy that he didn't know about this, any of this. But it just shows like, you know, I mean, Richard Helms – obviously, is someone who understands yes. normal procedure with respect right. to, you know, how these things get done. And he was very surprised by this fact. 
Yeah, I think that part of the mystery here also is part of the mystery of why more stuff didn't come out during the Family Jewels, you know, era of Watergate when Richard Dixon tried to get the, his own CIA director to dig up as much dirt on the CIA as possible. For safekeeping. For, well, yes. To, I mean, he. The, what, what really happened was that Schlesinger saw all the connections to the from the, between the CIA and the burglars and was like, what the hell is going on here? I got to – the CIA, they basically had come to the conclusion that the CIA was behind all this Watergate bullshit, which is how Nixon would have perceived it. I mean, Nixon committed lots of crimes, yada, yada. But the point is they, the family jewels, they didn't really turn up a whole lot of very explosive things. And I think that the reason for that is related to the same – to what happens with Oswald's files – here, it's that they're the Office of Security was doing that mole hunt, and yeah. they are kind of the inner sanctum of the inner sanctum mm. of the CIA. They're yeah. the group that handles like sexual blackmail, uh, probably counter. Why are you looking at me? Counterintelligence. <laughs> well, well, you guys have done a considerable amount of work on this well, we, subject, we both, and we all have. I don't know why you. Well, it's a little bit weird. All right. to be the only female. Let's go on. Well, and, and uh, because sexual you're blackmail. sexually blackmailing me, Brace. That's why that's and we know this, and this is. But our, you're saying it was like cordoned off, like specifically so far away that like really I mean even concentric circles of departments wouldn't be able to access it. Yes, I th- and I think that this actually gets into the key of some of the the worst secrets of the of the US is that there is a level of secrecy that is like <laughs> I to say it, it's like really high. You really do not get <laughs> access to that as you yeah. as evidenced by like there's a transcript of, of Richard Nixon trying to argue with Richard Helms about yeah. secrets related to the Kennedy assassination. He's making these arguments like, well, how is this supposed to work? The president comes in and doesn't even know what the last administration was doing and this doesn't seem right, whatever. And he still walked away empty handed. The president did. So what happens with this woman, uh, Betsy Wolf, when she is l- l- analyzing these files, she finds someone named uh, – he's got a great name – Dick Gambino. And uh, I feel like everyone, by the way, in the, in this <laughs> in this entire case, everyone is somehow yeah. named Dick Gambino, well, even when they're not named. Literally, Dick the Gambino. other two people he just mentioned also. I mean, Richard Nixon and Richard Helms. Yeah, Dick lots Nixon of dicks. And Dick yeah. Helms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a tale of many dicks, and yeah. and uh, this guy was not as bad because he actually explained it to her. He was saying like, "Look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter uh, what." how the file is it, it, what's most important is that the, the file can get routed somewhere so it'll always come to a, this place so that's why you can't find these things it's probably because they were immediately routed to the office mm. of security yeah. and he didn't he didn't know why that was the case or anything else about it but we can uh, we can extrapolate or whatever we can uh, understand that it's a black hole of sorts. And yeah. so that was the fact that Oswald was being used in a mole hunt like this made him the perfect person because all of his files were managed in a particular way or the vast majority of them. Yeah. And so this is why he was able to be manipulated in this way quite easily. And the fact that they found this woman uh, and her work and it was hidden away forever and never written up, um, I mean, that's it's pretty remarkable that she had so diligently looked at this. And it's, uh, you know, this is... The mystery of what happened to Oswald is likely somewhere in the Office of Security. And it, I would bet that they still have a lot of that stuff today because they as they do scrub things. I don't think they re- – they obviously don't release everything. They probably get rid of some documents. But they also have to keep them in a sense to know what they need to cover up in the future. Yeah. So I, I don't think that they do everything orally and then you know if everything's totally off the books. I think they actually have to have some way of making sure they know – 
what crimes they need to keep covering up because they're a pretty big criminal organization and they'll lose track of all the crimes they're constantly committing if they don't. I would. I I, want to put it into context uh, a little bit more for our listeners too is that um, the moles were a hugely important part of Cold War spy games. Yeah. Uh, And the USSR was significantly more sophisticated in a lot of that we know of. I mean, obviously we, we, we have... We don't have a ton of insight or at least as much insight as we'd like on either the CIA or the KGBs or whatever related intelligence agencies during the Cold War as as we might like. But um, the USSR was pretty adept at putting moles or even just giving the impression that maybe somebody who wasn't a mole, a real defector might be a mole, et cetera, uh, in the CIA, which obviously very famously caused Engleton to go insane or maybe he's the mole, you know, like – well, uh, and they were able to put their – like, uh, for instance, Kim Philby was a mole hunter. Yes, exactly. You know, he yeah. was basically Angleton's counterpart at MI6 and he was – he, I mean he was like a KGB guy from his days at, at Cambridge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he managed to – I mean he – there was <laughs> – they were never going to find – you know, it took them an extremely long time to find him uh, because he was extremely him. well placed. Yeah. And uh, Newman Newman thinks uh, John Newman, who's uh, written about Popov and um, uh, you know whatever source it was uh, that Popov identified that that told the KGB about the U two program, you know that person was never ultimately found, um, and so whatever uh, you know whatever uh, mole hunt they were doing to try to find you know Newman has theories about who it might have been, but. Uh, as far as the CIA was concerned at the time, you know, they never found that person, and presumably that person was able to continue to pass, you know, secrets to the KGB throughout the throughout the Cold War, or, or at least until they retired. Uh, so yeah, it seems like a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty devastating thing, especially when you consider that uh, Oswald defected uh, in in on Halloween of 1959. Um, and then there were two U-2 flights after that. The first one after that went off without a hitch. And then the second one after that was Gary Powers getting shot down mm-hmm. in, in May of 1960. Also went off without a hitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He blamed uh, Oswald too. Pa- he did. Powers did yeah, at certain yeah, points. He was I like, is that little Oswald I read guy. an interview with his son though where his son's like, I don't know if it was. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, he's like, I don't know. I really blame Oswald for yeah, it. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's definitely a lot of weirdness around around yeah. the Gary Powers shoot down. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, it's at least plausible to connect the two, or that or that someone would want it want it to appear that the two were connected. Uh, I think that's very plausible. And like you said, yeah, Powers, uh, because specifically the issue was you know the height at which the U two flies, which was like one of the most um, important parts of how it yeah. avoided. Um, getting shot down, and then also one of the most closely held things about it. And um, it's also very possible that that information came from the mole that Popov was talking about because that, uh, that is supposedly what the what the CIA mole told the KGB about the U-2 was all the technical details about it. Um, so, yeah, identifying who that was, you know, the U-2 being such a crucial part of uh, the, the U.S. surveillance at that point, finding out who that person was 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 pretty crucial, and it seems like you know, I mean, it certainly seems like Oswald was uh, involved in that, based on the fact that all these all these files on him were going to uh, the mole hunting units and and not the places you would expect them to. That gets into what Oswald was basically doing when he comes back, because it seems that most like while he's there, performing in the embassy, saying. 
I am a defector and I'm going to give you state secrets. My name is Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. And here's how you spell it. I mean, when he comes back, he is similarly acting in a really, he's drawing a lot of attention to himself as a communist without doing much effective communist organizing. Well, all right. Uh, from my experience with many communists, that's not so unusual. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but it's not his, I mean, he sort of like repeats this later on. He's very good at like making a scene and yes. making a very like, yes. hey, I, re- I remember that guy. Yeah. He's like really good at being that guy that you're going to remember yeah. because the scene he creates is so over the top. Being yeah. photographed in New Orleans. Yes, that's exactly example. what I'm thinking. Yeah. But it's like he's the guy who's he's going to have like props on him. He's like going to like knock over a bookcase on his way out. He's in wearing a, a giant sandwich board that says like Viva Fidel and stuff. Yes. Like, like, yeah. Really, that he's was gonna, what he like, was doing. He's going to and then open his briefcase and all these like gummy worms are going to fall out and he's going to like, slip on them. There actually was an instant them. where he's like holding a giant stack of uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee flyers and like he gets like beat up and they just scatter everywhere. Yes, so, so it's that just everyone his name. sees Exactly, them. it's just his name and that I'm, I love Cuba. Yes. Yeah. And it's just, they're just spread all over the place <laughs> on the streets of New Orleans. Yeah. yeah, he's really, really good at, you know, getting, um, getting all the evidence in order. Yeah, it's it's totally true because yeah, when he when he comes back from uh when he comes back from the Soviet Union, which you know, there's a there's a uh the the way that he the way that he, you know, got back to the US uh is very strange, you know, I mean, to not even get into any of his escapades in Russia where it seems like he was being surveilled. It seems possible that Marina was originally some kind of intelligence asset. Yeah, Marina I, well, I mean, yeah, Marina, like, Marina Oswald, from, his wife. From what I know about the KGB and the way they operated, like I would be shocked if she right. wasn't. Yeah. yeah. And from what I know about female like counterparts, yeah. they're very often assets. Yeah, there was a – there, 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 um, there was a uh, CIA – I can't remember – uh, what his what his cryptonym was, but um, he he did tell he did tell you know he he was a, he was another mole he was a you know KGB guy uh, in uh, he had trained in Minsk which was the city where Oswald was um, and that's what he told the CIA was that Marina was uh, what he called a swallow which is uh, basically a way that intelligence agencies would use women uh, to get you know get men into bed and and um, you know basically infiltrate their lives in that yeah. way. Um, I'm but, hoping that's a reference to the bird because it's just, I it, think it, so. it is, I think but so. it's also awful. Yeah, yeah. you know, and it's and uh, different in Russian. Yeah, right. Whatever the Russian word for that is, I doubt yeah. it's yeah. Uh, and uh, but his his what this what this um, mole told the CIA was that you know basically she she mostly wanted to get to the U.S. and get out of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and that she stopped being useful to them at that point. Uh, which is is you know she's still I don't know like when Oswald comes back he's sending letters to the he literally like wrote and you have to know, right like everything that goes to the Soviet embassy is read by the FBI yes like they're opening every single letter and if you're a halfway intelligent person you're gonna understand that that's the case because obviously yeah. that's the case uh, and so he's like he writes a letter to the Soviet embassy asking them for recommendations of left-wing bookstores <laughs> where he can get 
this is literally what he did. Yeah. He, and he asked for, you know, can you recommend to me left-wing bookstores where I would be able to get subscriptions to subversive material? Like, that's literally what he's... <laughs> he wrote subversive I don't material, think he used the word subversive material, but, but he like named yeah. left-wing and, you know, also like... You International know, publisher. He, he was asking yeah. for the CPUSA and the Socialist Worker Party, which, you know, is like a little bit, you Listen, know, pick one, right? This is, yeah, well, this is, the, this is always struck to me as one of the funniest things about the Oswalds... Uh, case i guess you could say is that like he was at at the same time as he was just like such a a sort of bog standard like i am a communist and like he moves to the soviet union right in 1959 right uh he also is like you know he's photographed famously in the backyard with trotskyist newspapers yeah. and like yeah. one trotskyist and then one yes yeah 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 which, which is, is just even like, weirder Listen, I, I'm not going to say that I've never read a Trotskyist newspaper in my life. In fact, they're kind of the only guys with newspapers. These yeah. Days. They kind of just end up in your hands. <laughs> they, just, they do. They do. Or sometimes they come to a work party you have and give one to you. The Spartacists. Uh, and, um, but a, and lectured us. But uh, the, it's, it's, that's always been the strangest thing is that like he's just like, yeah, I just like communism. Like, well, I like all of it. Especially given, like, he, the reason he told everybody he wanted to come back is that he had become disillusioned. Exactly. With yeah. li- having lived in the Soviet Union. That's what he told everybody. So for him to then come back and say, actually, like, he seems even more hardcore about it uh, after he came back than before he went, uh, which is, you know, totally contrary to the st- stated reasons he gave for why he came back to the U.S. in the first place. Uh, so it just, yeah, it it doesn't really, it does not really line up. I mean, it seems to me like you know there was an alternative, you know, there was a need for him, and he wasn't he wasn't useful but, because basically what what ultimately happens as far as his role in that U two mole hunt is, um, you know, I assume everybody in the Soviet Russia division was like, okay, you know, we're not getting any documents about Oswald, so clearly something's going on here. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like so he's we're being just used by on another level. We're yeah. just not going to touch this guy. He's clearly radioactive. Because mm. the intention would be somebody, the the KGB mole at the CIA, starts asking about Oswald. Yes, and when somebody starts asking about Oswald, uh, you know, you start to get a sense that okay, this this is at least a candidate for the mole. But that never happened. And this this is this is I mean. Ben, what you're describing, like, is a oh yeah, like textbook case of how things went down yeah. at the CIA. It's like they would they would sort of like put out these people as bait and like see who kind right. of gets picked up and asked about. Yeah, and both sides use false defectors all yeah. the time to spread false information. I mean, there's a famous false defector in this case, uh, Yuri Noshenko, mm-hmm. um, you know, who who uh, came to the U.S. and alleged, you know was alleged to be a, a KGB. Uh, defector and and spread all kinds of lies and and in particular told uh, told the CIA that the KGB had not, knew nothing about Oswald had no interest in him at all which is obviously not true especially now that we know there were like they were intercepting his mail over mm-hmm. there they had people like you know all kinds of people as well as you have the the other defectors that I mentioned other moles uh, who talked about Marina's role in surveilling him uh, so it's it's uh, yeah that technique of um, false defectors, uh, you know, this kind of flypaper thing that that uh, Oswald did to try to, you know, s- you know, s- uh, smoke out whoever the mole was in the CIA. Uh, but w- when it didn't work out, and he's just, you know, hanging out in Russia, uh, collecting like a huge paycheck. By the way, like he he had a, a beautiful apartment overlooking the river in Minsk. 
he was getting a, a bit in addition to his his factory job. He was like getting double. He was getting that a much income again uh, from the Soviet state, effectively. Um, so he, I think he was pretty clearly. They knew something was up with him, and they wanted to you know see what was going on and surveil him. Um, but yeah, then he comes back to the U.S. and almost immediately gets involved in uh, Cuba um, stuff and and the Fair Play for Cuba committee, uh, which uh, again for somebody who was ostensibly now disillusioned with communism is is a very strange uh, arc to take. Uh, so it, it's uh, again it's one of the, and and when you start to look at again how how documents and things got routed and and who knew what about about that, again, it starts to look like some kind of counterintelligence operation. Yeah, the Fair Play for Cuba committee angle is a huge part of some of these other assassination stories and the figures around Oswald. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems to be the way to tie him to to make him look like he's a, a communist connected to Fidel. And the, uh, the, and it raises questions as to what was really supposed to happen with the assassination because him getting killed the way that he was in jail, that doesn't seem like that was really the plan to have a local concerned pimp come in and, and shoot him. That mm-hmm. wouldn't be how you would draw it up. Um, and then other other people around him and other people that were involved in plots for, with JFK. I mean, there was one that was supposed to happen in Tampa with this guy, Gilberto Lopez, and he was uh, had been involved in the Fair Play for Cuba committee, just like Oswald. Um, and um, this was a plot that I think it's I think the president maybe changes his route, or so there's for whatever reason it doesn't get it is not it doesn't come to pass that he's shot at it in Tampa or anything. But what is interesting about this Gilberto Lopez guy is not just that he was involved with the Fair Play for Cuba committee, but that. After he ends up being in Dallas Fort Worth on the weekend of uh, the 22nd, and also afterwards he goes to Mexico City and from there flies to Cuba, um, just as Oswald was sort of trying to do supposedly, or somebody impersonating Oswald was doing in Mexico City. So uh, this is really fascinating. And the Fair Play for Cuba committee was uh, it was one of those operations that was illegal for the CIA to be doing, but they were still working mm-hmm. on trying to undermine it domestically, uh, which they're not supposed to do. And one of the people working on that was James McCord, um, the notorious Watergate burglar, the guy who in 1953 was tasked with covering up the Frank Olson murder, like a really big operator in terms of the it, it, in the Office of Security, which is, again, the inner sanctum of the CIA, where all the worst uh, secrets are kept. So that aspect of it is, I mean, it just seems clearly to be that in New Orleans, especially, that Oswald was there as an intelligence operative to discredit the Fair Play for Cuba committee on some kind of COINTEL pro operation type of operation, except uh, likely run by the CIA illegally. But I mean, they the FBI would get involved with those things too at certain points, and then they would subcontract them out to to goons like Guy Bannister in New Orleans. And that seems to be pretty clearly what Oswald was doing in New Orleans with the Fair Play for Cuba committee. It doesn't make any sense to be an organizer the way he was. And he was working out of the office of a right-wing anti-communist fanatic with enormous files on subversives. It's absurdly suspicious. I mean, yeah. it isn't even suspicious. It's the, just like, the 544 
Camp Street address. Which so is, strange. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain to, to our listeners what's up with that? Yes. Because it is such a weird – like, keep in mind that Oswald is in New Orleans. And listen, I cannot fault Lee Harvey Oswald for wanting to spend maybe 1960 in New Orleans maybe rather than Minsk because I'll tell you which one I'd prefer. But he uh, – he goes down there. And he's like, "I'm going to become this like Cuba pro-Cuba activist." Yeah, and uh, he ends up having this office. And yeah, where is it? Yeah, so yeah, so like you said, he goes. So in April he uh, of, of 1963, he moves to New Orleans, and he's going to start like a charter branch of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He has all this, all these letters with Vincent Lee, who was running the Fair Play for Cuba committee out of New York. Uh, and this was just a, it's, I mean, it's what it sounds like. It was basically a, a pro-Cuba or at least an anti-anti-Cuba. Um, uh, you know, uh, front organization basically for a lot of left-wing uh, groups, uh, which there were some interesting political battles inside the uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee. But in any case, Oswald goes to New Orleans and he is immediately starts passing out these flyers. And some of the flyers have this address, 544 Camp Street, which happens to be the address of Guy Bannister that, that Aaron just mentioned, uh, who was this former FBI uh, G-Man who was now running a, pr- a nominally private uh, anti-Castro uh, Cuban exile organization in New Orleans. So uh, is uh, what an incredible coincidence that uh, Oswald goes to Cuba to start a new Fair Play for Cuba committee chapter and the address that he puts on at least mm. some of the flyers that he's handing out happens to be the address of a right-wing anti-Castro uh you know, private, uh, you know, private contractor organizer who's doing this, uh, you know, for the FBI and CIA off the books. And he, he's pretty much the only member of Fair Play for Cuba. Yeah, it's just right? him. He just he him. lied about AJ Hadell was, which was his alter ego, mm-hmm. and and he had a membership card that was signed by AJ Hadell. Um, so you know, he was he was uh, signing his own his own membership card and making it appear. He was interviewed by the FBI a number of times, and he would just lie about having meetings at different people's houses. Um, it seems like he was um, he had an interest in Tulane. He wanted to uh, make it seem as though he was working with Tulane uh, professors who who were already targets of uh, both the local police intelligence unit as well as the FBI in New Orleans. Um, and he, he seemed to be uh, framing it up that he was involved with them. And he would even leave flyers um, ne- near locations where some of these Tulane professors lived, like on, on Pine Street in New Orleans, he would leave these flyers or near the Tulane campus, he would leave these flyers with his name and, and address. Um, so he seemed to be framing it up that he had these relations with uh, with these Tulane professors, which again, like Aaron was saying, would make sense if his job was to be this crazy guy who who mm-hmm. discredits the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Um, you know, he does. He also does some other bizarre. So first off, like even just the like even if Oswald somehow, how did he even know the 544 Camp Street address is just weird. Mm-hmm. But then also, how does he know who Carlos Brunier is? So Carlos Brunier, or Brunier, I'm sorry, my Cajun, my Cajun name pronunciation <laughs> is not up to snuff. It's okay. It's been about it's been a time since we've been in the swamp together. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, Brunier uh, led this group called the DRE or the Revolutionary Student Directorate, which mm-hmm. was this anti-Castro uh, Cuban exile organization that was run by the CIA. And Castro walks into a store that Brunier owns and finds Brunier and tells him that he wants to uh, start an anti-Castro militant like militia. He talks about, I used to be a Marine 
and like I'm going to help you uh, form, like let's form up an anti-Castro militia. And Brunier apparently was like, this guy's either a Fed or a communist. Mm. <laughs> like this is obviously. But what if he's both? <laughs> exactly. I don't think Brunier considered that possibility. <laughs> Uh, but that, so that happens on October 6th of 1963, again, just like six weeks or so, you know, before the assassination. Uh, three days later, Brunier and a couple of his friends find Oswald on Canal Street handing out Fair Play for Cuba committee flyers and standing there with a sandwich board that says like, Viva Fidel, hands off Cuba. So they get into a fight with him. And this is like, like you talk about, start, you know, yeah. like Liz, like starting a scene, creating a commotion. Yeah. You know, Oswald seems to want to get punched. Like he seems to want to get into a fight with these guys, uh, certainly as soon as he sees them. Uh, and obviously they're like, you just came to us three, three days ago. Right. <laughs> And said you wanted to start an anti-Castro organization, and yet here you are, uh, here you are flyering for for Fidel. Um, so Oswald gets arrested as a part of that, uh, which it also seems like he's trying to do. Yeah, exactly. And it generates these documents in the F, you know the FBI interviews him and asks him about this stuff, and you know the CIA it has a very tight hold on those documents. They don't get where you would expect them to go. Um, and then the biggest thing that happens with Brunier is that um, Oswald has – does this he, – he did a several radio debates. He was like very into uh, going on like college radio and local radio. He was and, a streamer. Yeah. He was like – he was a content creator uh, <laughs> and he was, trying to, he was trying to find his audience. So he would go and do these debates on the radio, again, like trying to get his name out there as being yeah. associated with the FPCC. Mm-hmm. And in one of these – uh, he's, he's this, this one, so this one happened, uh, I'm sorry, the, 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 um, incident where he goes to the store, that's August 5th. I said that was in October. That was August 5th. Um, and then the, the Canal Street thing where he gets into this fight with Brunier, that's on August 9th. Yeah. So he gets bailed out, he gets out of jail, and then on August 21st, he does this radio debate, uh, with a, with a couple of guys in Brunier and some other people are there as well. And somehow these people all know about his defection to the USSR. And they bring this up, like during this debate, um, like the classic. That's an ad hominem, sir. Yeah, I mean that's basically what. <laughs> that's Oswald, when you do your research online about your opponent. Yeah, but that's the thing is, like at this time, like yeah, there were newspaper articles about it, but, but like, to find that stuff, like yeah, are really these like, guys going and finding the microfiche? Like, are they going to their local yeah. library and going to the newspaper archives and like no, pouring over stuff? Like they're obviously not doing that. Somebody told them about this, yes. and obviously the the most likely explanation for who told them this uh, would be would be Brunier in the DRE uh, being a CIA CIA asset. Well, even more than that, the radio show where they were on uh, was run by this guy Ed Butler, who was head of the Information Council in the Americas, which was Inca, right? And that was a CIA. I mean, they were, they were funded by the CIA, so yeah. it was. It could have come from Diari and Bringier's posse, or it could have come from Ed Butler and the Inca yeah. people. Uh, but it was definitely not something you would have known unless he was some sort of savant who yeah. has a perfect memory of like newspaper clippings and, and reads and, the Washington Post apparently or whatever religiously. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a question because so what did like how much was the CIA and the FBI tracking Oswald like up to and prior? to New Orleans. Yeah, that's a great question. So because he's in da- so he starts his fair play for Cuba committee stuff in Dallas. Yeah. 
And then he, he, that's when he gets in touch with Vincent Lee, uh, who was leading the FPCC, and says, I want to start this, um, I want to start this branch. And they told him not to, by the way. Yeah, which they, they like, told him New not Orleans to do. This is a bunch of right-wing crazies. Don't yeah, do that. exactly. And he's like, I want to do they, it. They were like, don't, don't, they were literally like, don't get an office because um, you're going to get targeted. He'll get fireballed. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, hey, fire think about it this way. Maybe he was like, I'll, he took that advice, and then he put his enemy's office as the address <laughs> in the hopes that we get firebombed. <laughs> yeah. Who yeah. mulls the mole, you know what Who I'm saying? Who mulls the mole. Yeah, so there are there are. Um, I mean, I can just mention. So w- this is another. This time in New Orleans is another period um, where there was a lot of there were a lot of documents being produced about Oswald, but none of it was making into making it into his main file, like his main two hundred one file. So, um, you know, basically, if you if you were just somebody in um, the Soviet Russia d- division or really anybody in the CIA, and you went to go look up Oswald. Like you wouldn't find any of these reports. So, for instance, there was a memo uh, that was written by this FBI special agent Hostie in Dallas, um, uh, and he also knew about some of the some of the basic details of New Orleans. Um, you know that memo never makes it into Oswald's two hundred one file. Um, none of the information that because uh, even if Brunier was not the source of of uh, Oswald's defection uh, information coming to that uh, mm-hmm. radio interview, he certainly heard that. You know, whoever else knew about it, he was there and heard about it. Um, and all, like, you know, again, Brunier was was being handled by, and the whole organization was being handled by this uh, CIA, CIA officer, George Joannides, who is, uh, you know, is, is famous for uh, some other exploits as well, mm-hmm. specifically relating to the cover-up of, of all of this. But, uh, but conveniently, there's the 17-month period where Joannides, which included this period, uh, where Joannides was, was handling the DRE, uh, there's just a giant blank spot, and all of the monthly doc- like reports about here's what the DRE's been doing lately are just gone. There's not in the archive anywhere. Uh, and so, why was this information about Brunier not making it to the rest of the CIA? It was clearly being very closely held uh, by the um, by the Cuban Affairs, the SAS uh, department of the CIA. Uh, which is corroborated by the fact that one of Angleton's um, people, Jane Roman, you know, she uh, signs this memo goes out on October 10th that is going to inform the Mexico mm-hmm. City. You know, we'll get to Oswald in Mexico City and all of that in a second. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that happened was um, the CIA headquarters was going to give Mexico City a memo with everything they knew. Because remember, this is at a time when, like, the, the Oswald file was a physical file located in headquarters. Right. So, you, you you know, for Mexico City to find out about it, they'd have to get a memo about what's going on. Um, so this woman, Jane Roman, uh, a bunch of people, you know, very, in fact, the assistant dip, uh, the assistant director uh, for plans is, the, is one of the authors on it. So it's a pretty senior level memo that's getting written about Oswald, which, again, this was before the assassination. Why is there such high level attention on Oswald, you know, d- during the weeks leading up to the assassination? Uh, but she signs off on this memo saying the last information that the CIA has about Oswald was May 1962, which is while he was still in the Soviet Union. And she personally had read uh, FBI documents about Oswald's activities in Dallas and New Orleans. And so she just they just lied to the Mexico City office and said, oh, we don't – last thing we have is, is 1962. We don't know anything about Fair Play for Cuba. We don't know about any of his altercations with Brunier. And she said about that. She, when she was interviewed by John Newman and, and um, Jefferson Morley in the 90s, um, you know, she claimed to not remember what happened. But when they showed her her signature and showed her these documents, um, her explanation was, you know, I'm 
th- this is like me. This is me on October 10th, knowingly signing off on something I know is not true. That's mm-hmm. what she said. Mm-hmm. And her and she says the only interpretation I could put on this would be that this SAS group, which is the Cuba Affairs um, Department of of uh, the CIA, would have held all the information on Oswald under their tight control. So if you did a routine check, if you were just some random person in the CIA looking this up, it wouldn't show up in his 201 file. Uh, she goes on to say it's indicative of a keen interest in Oswald held very closely on a need-to-know basis. So that SAS that she's saying has a tight hold on this information is the same group that's running Brunier and the DRE. So again, all of this, all of the where these documents were and who yeah. was holding on to them, it, again, it seems indicative that there was um, uh, some kind of, you know, like Aaron, Aaron put it, an operation to discredit the FPCC that was being run by Cuban Affairs. Uh, and that Oswald was some kind of asset in in all of that. What you know, whether he knew it or not, uh, it seems like certainly he was treated that way by the by the CIA Cuban Affairs Division. Well, her explanation also mirrors uh, Helms's surprise in a lot of ways because yeah. it's, they're both saying the same thing, which is, oh, this wasn't handled how it was supposed to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in her case, she's saying like, I participated in right. doing that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was the one who I was the one who concealed this information from yeah. from Mexico City. Uh, which would would have been very relevant for them to know, given what he was doing there. The other thing, which I didn't mention earlier, but which I think is relevant, as you bring up the Cuban division, which should have been given some had some access to some of these files, is that when Oswald, when they were routing his files to the Office of Security, they weren't ending up in the SR, the Soviet division. That was. Where they, where they should have gone because he was somebody who had defected the Soviet yeah. Union. So they were whatever whatever they their concern with Oswald was, it was not apparently his connections to the Soviet Union where he had right. defected. And so right. that's just more the fact that they were not kept appraised of what Oswald was up to while he was over there. And then we've talked about Otto Atepka in the past, that State Department person who was trying to figure out who was and was not a false defector. And he was basically run out of the State Department because of that, because he was very persistent. Um, it all just points to Oswald being a, a pawn of the CIA in some sort of yeah. game that they were playing. Because like, if it was legitimate intelligence gathering about Oswald, the first thing that you would expect is like, He's like the reason you would pay attention to him is he's a KGB spy. Yeah, come back from that's, the U.S. There would be there would be like that's what's so sort of astounding to me is that there was such I mean the real paranoia at the CIA sets in like later than this, but still like this was this was I mean we're talking yeah. like were, this is they were still cold. paranoid. They were yeah. still I know, paranoid. but it wasn't like it wasn't like how it got yeah. after yeah. some notable disasters. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, it just it's it's really like they they seem to not even uh, according to the documents consider the possibility, which, you know I, listen my time at the agency was magical, it was brief I met some really amazing people some of whom let me down, um, but I'm like you know I'm no expert on this stuff but I'm like wouldn't you be like this guy might be a fucking spy like they might be like dipping him back yeah it, but unless you're already can like completely toss out that possibility. Yeah, unless you already know it's not unless, true. Exactly, unless right. you that's already know re- it's not true. That's the reasonable explanation. Yeah, you know. and like... It's kind of the only explanation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we, you know, we, we talked in a previous, uh, one of the JFK 101 episodes about uh, sort of his unofficial debriefings in, in Dallas. Um, but really, you'd think there would be like a systemic, like, or systematic... Um, like full actual debriefing of him after this. I mean, 
George de Morenstild is is more officially debriefed yeah. on his trips out of the country than Oswald is yeah. after spending time as a defecting U.S. Marine yeah. in the in the USSR. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you're like, wait, I need to hear more about Lee Harvey Oswald. Do we have something in store for you, which is our next episode after this one? Yeah, there's a part two coming. More information, more stuff to talk about. With that being said, we are joined, of course, by... Ben Howard. Myself. I'm Liz. I'm Aaron Good. Uh, that was Aaron Good. And, and also, weirdly enough, producer Young Chomsky. Mm-hmm. Because There's this has been... There's timber there. Drew and on. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>